Well, this is the, uh, the last of the lectures on Reed's critique of Hume, and the subject is Hume's theory of morals or his moral philosophy. There probably isn't a more famous sentence in the works of Hume, or at least one that has attracted quite as much attention as the one that goes this way. Reason of itself is inactive and perfectly inert. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never claim to have any other role than to serve and obey them. So here's the entree into, into Hume's moral philosophy. You don't derive a moral set of properties by way of reason. Reason is inert, and what finally gets us moving are sentiments or passions of one sort or another. So the rationalist project for a moral philosophy is just grounded in the wrong psychology. So that, as you might have gathered from last week's lecture, that's, that's the Humean position coming out of a so-called British sentimentalist tradition, and that's what it is that Reed is going to engage frontally. Now we might begin by asking, what is it about a problem that renders it moral? What, what makes a problem a moral problem? And presumably a problem is a moral problem because it's understood in terms of some set of first principles taken to be moral first principles. And so if Hume is faithful to the title of his work, at least the subtitle of the treatise, the attempt is going to be to reduce to system and indeed to absorb into the science of the day the subject of morals. And to the extent that what is at stake here is the development of a systematic science, shall we say a systematic science of morals, a systematic science of mind, there must be, as Reed says, certain first principles on which that science is going to be based. That is to say, you don't, you don't begin a project of that kind as a tabula rasa. You begin with certain core assumptions and then you will, tr you will trace out implications that seem to be validly drawn from, from those assumptions. So as Reed says, if, if, there, if there will be a subject of morals that's capable of analysis, that is to say just to launch Hume's project, then there must be first principles. Like all other sciences, morals must have first principles and all moral reasoning is based on them. In all rational beliefs, says Reed, the thing believed is either a first principle or something inferred by valid reasoning from first principles. And this would be as much the case with physics as it would be with geometry, what the ancient Greeks called common notions. There must be starting points. Now, once you have the starting point, then the inferences that you draw from those first principles are subject to a conceptual and even logical analysis. As Reed says, with respect to the inferences that you draw, the controlling dicta are provided by logical canons that go back to Aristotle. We, we know what it means to to draw uh, invalid inferences, for example. But where there's a disagreement on first principles, that is to say, where formal logic has no way of validating or contradicting the stipulated first principles of any systematic science, then to what do you appeal? And Reed's argument is that with respect to morals, and with respect to what you're prepared to accept as originating or foundational principles, the court of ultimate appeal is common sense. Now, how does he want to be understood on that point? Well, he says, the subject of morals has been hotly contested since a time out of memory. There are many competing theories. The theories are wrapped in subtleties. Some of them are enigmatic. Some of them might even be 
preposterous. But if you take a look at human history over that same uh, epoch, the manner in which people actually conduct their lives, the expectations they have of others, the manner in which they take on responsibilities and impute blame or confer praise, that is remarkably stable over the widest range of cultural uh, practices, uh, etc. So in the court of common sense, you see a surprising degree of stability, surprising if in fact the moral dimensions of life were shaped by the philosopher's theories. And they are not shaped by theories, so what is it they are shaped by? And of course, Reed is going to argue that they, they arise from a character that has certain inborn properties as such. Not a passive figure, not a bundle of perceptions, but a being with active powers, with a will that disposes actions of a certain kind, and with a rationality that is a guide to how we secure ends judged to be moral as such. So that's the, the, uh, the voyage we're, we're going on. Now just to adumbrate this distinction between the place of formal logic and the place of common sense, let me give you a passage from Reed's fifth essay on, uh, in the active powers of man. When men differ about such an inference, they have to appeal to the rules of reasoning which have been unanimously fixed ever since the days of Aristotle. But when men differ about a first principle, they have to appeal to another tribunal, namely the appeal court of common sense. First principles differ from inferences through reasoning in the kind of evidentness that they have and must be tested by different standards. So what's the evidentiary basis upon which you will judge a first principle to be valid? Well, the evidentiary basis is going to come very close to what you take to be a self-evident truth. Well, suppose you wanted to say, look, why don't we just uh, cut to the chase? The answer to the question is a course of action. Moral is what is it that course of action leads to? Suppose it leads to pleasure. Suppose it leads to misery. That should be the beginning, middle, and end of it. And of course, Reed disposes of consequentialism uh, forthwith. As he says in chapter four, suppose mice rescue the distressed person by chewing through the cords that bind him. Well, we're not going to start naming streets after the mice because of their role as great liberators. Mice chewing a rope and freeing a person otherwise bound simply are mice chewing a rope. So that you can secure any number and variety and quality of consequences without there being any warrant for a moral imputation. Consequentialism fails perhaps not in designating outcomes as desirable or undesirable, but in designating actors as moral or not moral. That is, you might have much to say about the moral quality, the mor much to say about the desirability of the consequence without reflecting morally on the actor who brought it about. Now, what about consulting the, to put it pejoratively, the wisdom of the herd. I mean, is this really an appeal to the mob? Is Reed saying, well, philosophers can stay in the seminar room and argue, but the court of last recourse is the, the public enthusiasm and so forth? Well, he wants to put it this way. There's no part of philosophy more fine-spun and complex than the so-called theory of morals. And no part of philosophy is plainer and easier to understand <clears throat> than the practical part of morals. There is indeed no branch of human knowledge in which there is such general agreement among ancients and moderns, learned and unlearned. From this disagreement over theory and agreement about the practical part, See, widespread disagreement at the level of conjecture, surprisingly 
full-throated agreement at the level of the actual conduct of life, we can infer that the practical rules of morality have a firmer foundation than the theory does. Now remember, he's discussing not just the writer of the Clapham Omnibus, but he's, he's also referring to the greatest philosophical minds of history. In their practical affairs, they agree with the writer on the Clapham Omnibus. They agree when they go to the market as to what constitutes fair dealing, etc. So, so this practice of life itself, lived life, shows surprising uniformity across time and culture in ways that theories do not. Now, Hume's famous passage where reason is not only inactive, but its function is to be a slave of the passions. <clears throat> is this how we understand the relationship between rationality and morality? Reed says, we're going to have to be very clear in our use of words here. He says, to find what a common word means, you don't go to a philosophical theory, but to common usage. Our moral judgments can properly be called moral sentiments because the English word sentiment always stands for a judgment accompanied by feeling. You see what he wants to alert the reader to is that when Hume and the entire British sentimentalist tradition seek to ground morals in sentiment as if this is something over and against rationality, this, on Reed's account, is an abuse of language. There's a fundamental difference between having a feeling and having a sentiment. A fundamental difference between having a sensation, as in, gee, that tickles, and having a sentiment, as in, I'm feeling quite melancholy. Because that entails a feeling about something, a judgment about the source of the feeling. Indeed, a judgment that gives rise to the feeling. When we talk about sentiments being joyful, pessimistic, morose, jovial, uh, optimistic, we're talking about a fairly sizable chunk of the, of, the, of the personality of the person. And so the very term sentiment is already carrying with it judgments and appraisals. And therefore it's an artificial distinction to separate out sentiment and rationality. There's also a peculiar use of reason in the writings of Hume. Mind you, there's all the difference between something called reason being inert, if what one means by reason is this rather abstract cognitive power that may or may not be exercised. It's not exercised while one is sleeping or if one is unconscious. <clears throat> There's that sense of reason and one can say that with respect to moving a muscle or getting one to do something, reason as this abstract power is inert. But this is quite different from saying that having a reason is inert. That is the difference between reason as an abstract power and having a reason to do something is a, is a psychologically profound difference. And once one appreciates the difference, then one recognizes that one is morally responsible insofar as one had a reason to act or not to act and did so or failed to do so. Those actions that proceed on the basis of having no reason whatever are the actions of a, of a madman, or they're merely accidental, or they're the result of happenstance, or they're unintended. Indeed, when a court meets to determine whether one is guilty, the real question is what motivated the action? No one is charged with a crime for falling at 32 feet per second per second because that's something over which one has absolutely no control. 
So if one says I fell at 32 feet per second per second, but what I had longed to do was not fall at all, we, the, the judgment we make is in terms of what motivated the event. And if the event is entirely explicable in terms of physical causal laws, there isn't a crime to begin with. Why not? Because there isn't a motive to begin with. Opportunity and motive, the law says, is what one inquires into in determining guilt. Opportunity and motive. And by motive one means a reason for acting. The butler did it because he stood to inherit the estate. And it's the because term that the court is interested in, and it's the because term that gets not to a sentiment, but to a reason for acting. So we want to be clear on how sentiment and reason should be understood in these disquisitions, which are at base psychological disquisitions. They're disquisitions about the nature of human nature. Uh, and so they're, they're not merely the abstract philosophical ruminations of the seminar room. They're intended to be very nearly clinical appraisals of just what it is that gets people to do what they do. Now, in chapter 7 of Reed's Active Powers, he, he raises this point. If what we call moral judgment isn't really a judgment, but merely a feeling, it follows that the moral principles that we've been taught to consider as an immutable law to all intelligent beings have no basis except an arbitrary structure and fabric in the constitution of the human mind. Thus, by a change in our structure, immoral things could become moral. There are beings who can't perceive mathematical truths, but no defect, no error of understanding can make what is true to be false. Now, Reed wants to set up a parallel between one who can't do math and the standing of mathematical truths. And in a manner of speaking, one who can't do morals and the standing of what Reed takes to be moral truths. If all we mean by moral truths are those that are so-called because of our feelings, well, of course, our feelings are directly related to the constitution of our corporeal being. Well, presumably, you could uh, redesign the nervous system so that violent and mischievous acts at the expense of the innocent seem to be just terrific, whereas benevolent and caring acts seem to be the acts of a fool and a felon. Now, do we want to say that the moral quality of the act is so dependent on the constitution of actors that indeed we have to reserve judgment about the moral properties of an act until we've examined just these peculiarities of anatomy and physiology? Reed says no. Reed says that it would violate every adult, every competent person's comprehension of moral right and wrong to argue that the moral status of an act is simply an expression of one's biological constitution. And it's the biological constitution that grounds sentiments, you see. So he argues here, as he, as he has throughout the topics we've taken up in the course, that this is just bad psychology that Hume is, is offering. It's incomplete. It's defective, and on, Hume's, on Reed's account, it's defective and incomplete because it does not proceed from the methods of Bacon and Newton. It's something that proceeds from the armchair rather than from a close systematic observation, not only of individual persons, but entire cultures and entire epochs of historical time. Now, not only that, but a sentimentalist theory of morals is a bar to moral argument. How can you possibly argue with somebody about their feelings? Well, what is it you say? If Smith comes up and says, well, shall I ruin your lunch? 
If Jeffrey Dahmer comes up and says, sampling the cuisine, I happen to prefer Homo sapiens to a rack of lamb. I just feel better, more completely sustained by grilled neighbor. Now, how do you have an argument with somebody about what he claims to please his palate? Do you see? One man's poison is another's poisson. So there, there would be no grounds for moral argument, and yet we have moral arguments all the time. And it's quite clear we're not arguing about how our interlocutor is supposed to feel. We're arguing about how our interlocutor has reasoned through a moral problem. We're arguing about what the interlocutor takes to be a foundational moral precept. In fact, we're arguing about the proposition that morals is something finally grounded in sentiment. But the argument itself is not directed by sentiment. It's directed by the rules of argument. It's, it's, it's directed in that Aristotelian way that tests uh, implicature and, and uh, valid and invalid inferences. Now, in book three of the treatise, Hume offers this. This is a longish passage, but it's Hume, so it's well written. Suppose someone lends me a sum of money on condition that it be repaid in a few days. After the few days have passed, he asks for his money back. I ask, what reason or motive do I have to restore the money? Perhaps it will be said that my regard for justice and my hatred of villainy and knavery are sufficient reasons for me. And this, he agrees, would be a satisfactory answer to a civilized man who has been trained up according to a certain discipline and education. But, says Hume, if you gave this answer to a man in his rough and more natural condition, he would reject it as perfectly unintelligible and sophistical. For what do this honesty and justice consist in? Not surely in the external action, so it must consist in the motive with which the external action is performed. This motive can't be a respect for the honesty of the action, because it's a plain fallacy to say that a virtuous motive is required to make an action honest, and a respect for its honesty is the motive for the action. We can't have a respect for the virtue of an action unless the action is already virtuous. Now, so you see, you're going to get tied up in some sort of infinite, infinite regress. Now, there must be some virtuous motive that is antecedent to the respect that we have. And this isn't merely a metaphysical subtlety. So what does this force us to conclude? When we judge an action to be good or bad, it must be good or bad in its own nature before that judgment can be made. Otherwise, the judgment is false. But if the action is good in its nature, then the agent's judgment can't make it bad. And if it's bad in its nature, the agent's judgment can't make it good. To deny either of these would be to credit our judgment with a strange magical power, to transform the nature of things. It would be to say that my judging a thing to be what it isn't makes it really be what I erroneously judge it to be. I think that that gives the objection its full strength. So... Hume is cast here as subtle and profound. What is it that makes an action judged to be good or bad? You can't say that it's the virtue or the vice in the action, because that already presupposes a standard of virtue and vice. And if you already have a standard of virtue and vice, then the question is, where did that come from? Well, if it didn't come from actions of a certain kind, it would have no source at all. But if it came from actions of a certain kind, you would already have to have the standard in place 
to classify the action as virtuous. And so you're a a squirrel in the garden chasing his tail. Now, Reed has a reply to this. He says, nothing is more evident than that a man who tells the truth, believing it to be a lie, is guilty of a falsehood. This is not only self-evident, but it's, it's analytically true. But the metaphysician wants to hold that this is absurd. In short, if there's any strength in Hume's argument, it follows that a man might be highly virtuous without having the least respect for virtue. Very benevolent without ever intending to help anyone. Very malicious without ever intending any hurt. Very vengeful without ever intending to retaliate for an injury. Very grateful without ever intending to return a benefit. And strictly truthful while intending to lie. So we reject this reasoning as inconsistent. It's inconsistent with truths that are self-evident. Now even if we couldn't point out where Hume goes wrong, he says we can at least cut the knot even if we can't untie it. So going in, Reed says, first you consult the world of common sense and how people have used these terms and made these judgments since a time out of memory. And there you will find absolute inconsistency with the position that Hume is advancing, where it's supposed to be so metaphysically problematical to establish just what it is about an action that makes it virtuous or vicious. People don't have trouble making that judgment. So if there's some sort of metaphysical theory that renders making the judgment problematical, and in the real world almost no one has trouble making the judgment, so much the worse for the theory. You don't go to the seminar room to test the validity of self-evident truths. And you don't go to the seminar room in order to correct the adaptive habits of a creature over a course of millennia. Philosophy is supposed, natural philosophy or science, is supposed to provide an explanation for the world as given, not the world as dreamed up, do you see? Reed goes on to say, but let's see whether we can discover the fallacy in the argument. We ascribe moral goodness to actions considered abstractly without any relation to the agent. Now this is another one of these these verbal distinctions which turn out to be extremely important. And that is the the distinction that must be made between how we characterize an act and how we characterize an actor. We ascribe moral goodness to an agent on account of an action he has done. We call it a good action, though in this case the goodness is really in the man and is ascribed to the action only as a figure of speech. Now when we describe an action considered abstractly as morally good and then describe the agent as morally good because of that action, Are we giving the word good the same meaning in both cases? Or do we unconsciously change its meaning depending on whether we're applying it to the action or to the man? The action considered abstractly doesn't have understanding or will. Do you see? So I reach into the water, you're drowning, and I pull you up. My hand is not a willful, intending, rational, benevolent agent. It's an instrument. So it's not the action, because the action could be the mice chewing the rope, you see. The action considered abstractly doesn't have understanding or will. It isn't accountable. It can't be under any moral obligation. But all these things are essential to the moral goodness of the man. If a man didn't have understanding and will, he couldn't have moral goodness. 
From this it strictly follows that the moral goodness we ascribe to an action considered abstractly is not the same as the moral goodness we ascribe to the person for performing the action. The meaning of good is changed when it is applied to these different subjects. Now, note what Reed's focus is here. Remember Hume on personal identity. Who is Hume? He's a bundle of perceptions. What's a bundle of perceptions? It's a congeries of passive responses to the influx of stimulation. The emphasis really is on passivity. No matter how rich the associative bonds might, might finally make our complex ideas, the game begins with a passive subject of impressions whose mind is capable of making copies of things delivered to it. Reed's answer to that is to focus on active principles, on agentic powers. With respect to causality, recall the Reedian reply to Hume's theory of causal concepts. On Hume's account, it becomes a fixture and habit of the mind to treat A as the cause of B when the two have been constantly conjoined and A has reliably preceded B. On Reed's account, a creature lacking agentic power, a creature unpossessed of an awareness of himself as the source of his own actions, would never impute causality to events in the external world based merely on the fact that they occur together in time. It's an inference from ourselves to the external world when we impute uh, causal powers. Reed agrees with Hume that we do not have an idea of power. We don't. Hume makes much of the fact that we have no idea of power. Reed makes much of the fact that not only do we not have an idea of power, but that the powers that we have are so basic, they are not reducible to some antecedent, more fundamental set of ideas. Now, there is a subtle point here. Because we're actually exercising various powers in doing the inferential work to begin with. We actually are integrated, self-conscious, continuing beings even as we sit there attempting to determine whether we are the sources of our actions, etc. In other words, everything doubted in what's taken to be the skeptical philosophy of Hume is presupposed in putting together that very philosophy. Or at least that's the, the overarching nature of the criticism. Now, the question naturally arises in this context as, as to the extent, if we are moral beings, the extent to which we are responsible beings, uh, the extent to which we are determined. Because after all, if morality is grounded in sentiment, and if sentiment is grounded in certain constitutive principles applying to a creature of a certain kind, no one is responsible for his biochemistry. No one is responsible for his anatomy, for his limbic system, you know, his septum, etc. So what then? One can say that uh, actions proceed from the will of the actor, but is not the will itself determined? You are thirsty. To slake your thirst, you must drink something. Yes, it's an act of will to reach for the glass and consume the fluid. But what is it that's driving the will, if not thirst? Is it a reason? Is it a sentiment? Is it a feeling? And more largely, did what you do turn out to be determined by forces over which you have neither willful nor rational control? This is an abiding problem in philosophy, of course. 
Now, Reed's conception of moral freedom is expressed in the statement, by the liberty of a moral agent, I understand a power over the determination of his will. I can give this to you in a trendy Reedian maxim. The cause of an action is the will of the actor, and the cause of the will is the actor himself. Well, this sounds very much like a substance theory of the self. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Uh, by a substance theory of the self, we mean that the self is not further reducible to something else, and that, in fact, it contains within it causal or agentic powers. That is, active powers, which is to say, that it can do and it can forbear from doing, which on Reed's account is the only proper use of the concept of power. One billiard ball cannot but help move another when it strikes it. So the billiard ball does not have an active power. So the effect it has on another billiard ball must be based on some set of principles not in the billiard ball, Shall I expand on that point? Does that sound a little too subtle for the time of day and the cloudy sky? Well, look, Reed's authority on this can be traced almost as far back as God. It can be traced directly to Isaac Newton, which, if you're writing in the second half of the 18th century, is about as close to heavenly wisdom as you're likely to get. When Newton takes up the question of just why it is that the gravitation laws work the way they do, he says with absolute confidence, I don't have the foggiest idea. I can set down the laws by which the cause operates, but as for the cause, now, where do you think Newton looks for the cause? He tells us, I'm not making this up. You find the cause in the creator of the universe himself. It so pleased God to constitute reality as he did, and this is what holds the blankety-blank thing together. Now, of course it is law-governed, and the proper application of scientific methods, systematic observation, measurement, etc. Well, you, you can work out these laws. But in working out the laws, you do not identify just why it is causes work the way they do. You don't know why the gravitational effect is proportional to the product of the masses. Why, why isn't it proportional to mass one times three times the square root of mass two. There's no sensible answer to that. Well, there's the, yes, there is a sensible answer to that. The answer to that is, that's just not the way it works. Now you say, well, why doesn't it work that way? Well, at that point, let's say that you're an agnostic or an atheist. At that point, you engage in some sort of hand movement, which translates into, please stop pestering me. Or if you're a God-fearing person, you say, well, that's the way you know who set it up. Or if you're a philosopher, you put your hand around your chin and say, call me Thursday. I don't know. But Newton was satisfied that when it comes to these ultimate questions, the ultimate questions are not answered by science. The proximate questions are answered by science. And this is the position that Reed is taking. On, on the matter of, of the control we have over our own will. As it happens, we do have it. How do we have it? Seems to be contrary to core scientific precepts. Nothing is the cause of itself. Well, perhaps nothing physical is the cause of itself. But persons with active powers are the causes of their actions. And that's that. That's that in the sense that you can't go further back than that. Now, um, so, he's, so Reed takes it upon himself now to offer a criticism of determinism 
as it's found surely in Hobbes and to some extent in Locke. Addressing both, Reed says this. Liberty, they say, consists only in a power to act as we will. And it is impossible to conceive in any being a greater liberty than this. Hence it follows that liberty does not extend to the determination of the will, but only to the actions consequent to its determination and depending on the will. To say that we have the power to will such an action is to say that we may will it if we will, and so on in an infinite series of wills, which is absurd. To act freely, therefore, can mean nothing more than to act voluntarily, and this is all the liberty that can be conceived in any man or in any being. Now, Reed doesn't want to argue that the will is the cause of itself. It is caused. But is it necessitated? He says this. In every voluntary action, the determination of the will is the first part of the action, upon which alone the moral estimation of it depends. You can almost hear an anticipation of Kant in this. You know. There's only one absolute good in the cosmos, that is the good will, that sort of thing. It has been made a question among philosophers whether in every instance this determination be the necessary consequence of the constitution of the person and the circumstances in which he is placed, or whether he had not the power in many cases to determine this way or that. The philosophical question is this, granting that the action proceeds from the will, are the determinations of the will themselves necessitated, either by the constitution of one's, one's very makeup, physical makeup, and or the circumstances under which one finds oneself. Whether this notion of moral liberty even be conceivable or not, on that every man must judge for himself. To me there appears no difficulty in conceiving it. I consider the determination of the will to be an effect. This effect must have a cause which had power to produce it, and the cause must be either the person himself, whose will it is, or some other being. The first is as easily conceived as the last. So for, for Reed, and he asks you to consult your own experience, Reed says for me, I don't have a problem with this. The answer to the question, what disposes my will the way it, the way it is so disposed, is I do. But, 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 no, sorry. Well, you're saying that something causes itself. Yes, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. But, yeah, because alternative theories are simply, they're, they're unimaginable except within the seminar room. Do you see, look, just step back for a moment. Some of you are taking notes. You've chosen to take notes. Now, is the best explanation of your taking notes that your endocrine system being in the state it's in, you, you, you know we could drag this out. I could drag this out. Right. Or that you think at some later time you might want to be able to provide yourself with a summary of the lecture and the notes will be helpful. Now, why does one resist that explanation? Well, you resist it to the extent that one resists that explanation, it's because one's mother, while carrying you, was frightened by a scientist into thinking that sensible people confine all of their explanations to those that are authorized by science. Well, it's a shame she had that traumatic experience. You might end up living all of your days under the weight of it. But mind you, when she gave you sustenance and worried that there was too much of a draft in your room, she would not say the best explanation of her worry and solicitude was her endocrine system. 
she'd say that she had taken on the responsibilities of motherhood. She also had very definite affection for you. And that this is a set of activities that explains itself, for goodness sake. And if you said to her, who or what is making you do this, she'd probably think you were daft. Now, she wouldn't think you were daft if she took a seminar on free will and determinism. Because there these questions become questions of moment. And then you leave the seminar room. And it turns out that with Reed, you don't find answering these questions difficult at all. You stepped back from the curb because you got to the curb too late for the light still to be green. If a person is the cause of that determination of his own will, he was free in that action. That's the sense in which one is free. You're free to the extent that you have determined the course of your will. And it is justly imputed to him, whether it be good or bad. But if another being is the cause of this determination, either by producing it immediately or by means and instruments under his direction, then the determination is the act indeed of that being and is solely imputable to him, which is precisely how the law understands the relationship, interrelationship between and among um, actors and criminal acts, conspiracies, etc. Why is it the person who drives the getaway car is as, for all practical legal purposes, is, is as fully guilty of anything committed in, in the process as those who actually took the action? What do we mean by an accessory to the fact of a crime or after the fact of a crime, etc.? We don't hold people responsible for what they do at gunpoint because there the determination of the will is not the person whose will it is, but something external to the person. Now these are not simply common sense understandings, as in expressions of herd-like ignorance. They actually ground one of the most systematic and developed bodies of thought and practice the human species has ever produced, namely the law. And any alternative to this, Reed wants to argue, is a contradiction. So he goes on to say, It is true that nothing is in a man's power but what depends on his will. But this is so far from excluding his will from being in his power that it necessarily implies it. For to say that what depends upon the will is in a man's power, but the will itself is not in his power, is to say that the end is in his power, but the means necessary to that end are not in his power, which is a contradiction. For if the will be not, nothing else can be in our power. Every effect must be in the power of its cause. The determination of the will is an effect and therefore it must be in the power of its cause, whether that cause be the agent himself or some other being. Well, what do we have in the end? We have two great philosophers. Of course, I'm not sure whether now or eight weeks ago you would have said, well, you can't utter the names human read in the same breath and mean comparable greatness. No, I grant you, Hume too was a great philosopher. I'm just, 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 just kidding. Um, here we have two careful, thoughtful thinkers on the most fundamental issues in the history of thought. Their methods are different, and I don't submit these candidate methods to a vote nor do I fail to see great merit in both, but it's important to note the differences. Sometimes uh, people of my vintage smirk when they hear about a new discipline called experimental philosophy. Well, well I, I, I don't smirk over that. In a manner of speaking, Reed is the quintessential experimental philosopher. And how do I want that understood? 
Reed regards the core issues in philosophy not to be subject to convincing and settling positions the way we deal with inert matter, but to be approachable by the same methods that have been so fruitful in what even then were understood to be the developed sciences and what today are colossally developed sciences. Systematic observation, measurement where possible, holding one's own private, what, nuances, idiosyncrasies and the like as non-dispositive. How, how does the world actually operate? And you don't take yourself as an exemplum um, from which you can generate universal propositions. You actually have to go out and do the work. Now, I, I mentioned this first week. Um, the chapter of seeing in Reed's inquiry, what are all of these elements about? The Idomeneans, a fictional people that live in two dimensions. A disquisition on whether animals with laterally placed eyes see in depth. How it is persons suffering squint nonetheless can have accurate visual perception. The geometry of visibles, to some extent the anticipation of Riemannian ge what What's this all about? These summaries of clinical pathological conditions in vision. And the more you read in that chapter, the, the more you say, well, why is he doing all this? Of course, he's doing all this to point out how you approach the subject. What is the relationship between visual perception and the contents of consciousness? This is how you do it. You study the system, inexhaustibly study the system, study it in its pathological state, in its normal state, in its conceivable states. Study it in lower organisms, do you say? And all of this is to underscore the difference between a kind of introspective Lockean armchair psychology striving to be scientific and an actually scientific approach to issues in psychology. I think because of these methodological differences, Reed and Hume are actually great ships and the metaphor works here. They, they are passing in, in the night. And in fact, when in the last year of his life, Hume edited his own work for final publication, sending the works off to Millar, to his publisher. He says, and I think he says in a way that's utterly honest as Hume was, that I believe with these emendations I have answered all of the objections of Dr. Reed and that silly Beatty, he's referring to James Beatty. I think Hume did believe he had answered all of the objections raised by Dr. Reed. I'm inclined to say that I don't believe he answered any of them. That's it.